Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Mireille Gino, and this is the New Books in African Studies podcast. Hello, everybody. This is Mireille Gino, and this is the New Books in African Studies podcast. Today on the podcast, I will be speaking with Lisa Lindsay, the Bowman and Gordon Gray Distinguished Term Associate Professor of History at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, about her book, Atlantic Bonds, a 19th Century Odyssey from America to Africa, published by the UNC Press. Dr. Lindsay, hello. Hello, and thank you for having me. Great. Well, I really, um, I'm really happy to have you. I really enjoyed, uh, really enjoyed the book, and so I'm happy to uh, be able to chat with you uh, about it. Thank you. I'm glad you liked the book. Good. Um, yeah. So the so the uh, the book begins with sort of the unusual story of an African American family and a Nigerian family connected by a common ancestor. Um, who somehow kept in touch over many generations, uh, despite you know the obvious distance and and the the sort of travails in their respective countries. Can you talk about um, this story and how you first became aware of it? I became aware of it in a footnote of a paper I was reading for a conference. I had previously done a book about labor and gender in southwestern Nigeria, and I thought that I was going to continue in that vein and do something about Nigerian women. And so I read a conference paper about an important woman in Nigerian history named Kofo Adamola. And in a footnote, it said that her grandfather had come from the United States. And so I immediately became curious and wanted to know more about that. So it's a it's an example of, of following the the trail of footnotes. People think that sometimes they don't get read very often, but I was very interested once I saw that on the first page of a conference paper. So that's that's really interesting, and, and it actually gives us an opportunity to sort of uh, maybe back up a step. Um, you, you talked about your um, your the work that you'd been doing um, uh, in uh, Nigerian um, Nigerian women and, and gender studies um, is that is that part of your scholarly background? Yeah. So my first book was called Working with Gender, Wage, Labor, and Social Change in Southwestern Nigeria. And it was my dissertation book. And it charted how gender relationships and household relationships were transformed in the colonial period in a context in which Southwestern Nigerian women had a tradition of economic independence, and yet the imposition of colonial wage labor was very male. And so I wanted to know about that dynamic. Um, And I thought that that's what I would continue with. Instead, I continued with working in the same general geographic area, but I moved back in time uh, into a different kind of project. And actually, although it sounds like that is a big change, the 
project uh, that became Atlantic Bonds, the book we're talking about, came out of a longstanding interest that I had somewhat put aside to do my dissertation project. I had always been interested in connections between the United States and Africa or the Americas in Africa. And as a graduate student, in fact, I had published a paper on Brazilian ex-slaves who uh, moved to, to Lagos, Nigeria, where many of them had in fact lived before they had been enslaved and taken to Brazil. So I was interested in that kind of those kinds of connections, and this the project that became Atlantic Bonds is not the the Brazilian story, but it is also a story of of a so-called quote unquote return to Africa and the connections between West Africa and the Americas. Really interesting. Um, so so to 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 then um, hop back. So you mentioned. Um, Kofo Adamola, who, um, if I'm not mistaken, would would have been um, the the granddaughter of really the focus of the book, Churchill Vaughn. Is that right? Yes, yes. And so, so after that initial um, uh, entry into the into the story, um, the 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 story itself, as I said, is, you know, you, you you talk in the book about how it had been this. this um, uh, story handed down through generations, and then um, an account of it is published in Ebony Magazine, so it gets sort of a wider, um, a wider um, uh, reader readership, right? And a broader set of people uh, become acquainted right. um, with this story in the seventies, um, and and I'm I'm wondering about. Um, Sort of the, I guess the, I guess without going too, getting too far ahead of ourselves, um, I'm wondering about the, how that story, again, sort of drove you to, um, to begin um, looking into this common ancestor, specifically CPO Vaughn. Sure. So maybe I should just tell the story of the genesis of the, of the book, which is that I, saw this footnote in the conference paper and I was going to Nigeria anyway that summer because I thought that I was starting on a new project and I was going to do a little bit of scoping and I thought it would have something to do with Nigerian women. Um, And so when I got to Ibadan, which is where the University of Ibadan is and the National Archives, I started asking people about this family, about Kofo Adimola's family, because I was had had my curiosity peaked and the Southwestern Nigerian old elite is kind of a closely connected group. And it didn't take long before I met someone who knew people in the family. Kofo Adamola had recently died, but her sister in fact lived in a house very close to where I was staying. And so I went and paid her a visit and pretty soon I was connected to some cousins and some other people who were related to this to this family. And the, the family name was Vaughn. Adamola was um, the married name of the woman I had originally become interested in. But but V-A-U-G-H-A-N is the, is the surname of the family and of that ancestor who had come from the United States. So I started going around to these 
as it was elderly ladies mostly, and asking them about this, their family. They were all connected to the Vaughns in one way or another. And every time I had the same experience, it was like a Groundhog Day. And they'd sit me down, they'd give me a nice cup of tea, and then they'd say, wait here, and they'd go rummage in the back and come back with a copy of Ebony Magazine from 1975. And because it turns out Ebony Magazine had done a cover story on the Vaughn family in 1975. And the the Ebony story was called A Tale of Two Continents. The Vaughn's fa- saga, the Vaughn family, A Tale of Two Continents. And it told the story of this 19th century African-American migrant who had come to Africa and founded a family in Lagos, Nigeria. And over time, the two branches of the family in the United States and in Nigeria had kept in touch so that the 1975 article had pictures of people from both branches of the family getting together in family reunions and so on. And the article told the origin story of this family about a man named James Churchwell Vaughn, who in my book I call Church Vaughn because that's how he appears in the records. Um, who in the 1850s left his home in South Carolina and ultimately ended up in Lagos, Nigeria, where he spent the rest of his life. He died in the 1890s. And so Ebony Magazine gives a story, gives a historical account of how this happened and the a brief account of some of the adventures that he had. And it, 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 it was a very, very engaging story. Um, and it's it's important to remember too. This is 1975. Roots came out on TV um, in early 77, but it had already been published as a book. There was a lot of excitement about Roots, and this was sort of Ebony's answer to Roots because what it showed was an African American family who had these long standing connections to Africa. Um, that they had maintained over the previous century. And it wasn't just it wasn't just that they had maintained these connections because an African American had migrated successfully to Africa in the mid-19th century and had stayed in touch with his family. The Ebony article even went further than that. And this was so what was so appealing about it and what piqued my interest even more once I saw the article. It's said that the whole reason that James Churchill Vaughn had gone to Africa in the first place was because his father, an African-American enslaved man in South Carolina, had on his deathbed told all of his children to go to Africa because that's where he was from. And (laughs) according to the story in Ebony Magazine, when Church Vaughn got to Yoruba country, that is modern day southwestern Nigeria, he saw people with facial scars, so-called country marks or so-called tribal marks on their faces that matched the scars that his father had, that the father had himself. And so for James Churchill Vaughn, this was confirmation that he had come to the exact place that his father had been kidnapped from and that he was, in fact, making a family reunion. He was undoing 
the violence and damage that the slave trade had done by taking his father out of his father's community and bringing him to South Carolina in the slave trade. In fact, he was returning to the literal place that his father had been taken from. This is a story in Ebony Magazine. And so um, this was a real root story. Here was an African-American who in 1853 found the place that his father had been taken from and was recreating, reconnecting the ties that had been broken by the slave trade. And so it was a great story in Ebony Magazine. Um, And when these ladies in the early 2000s showed it to me, they showed it to me with a lot of pride um, and said, this is... uh, this is what you've, you've been asking about. This has the answers to all of your questions. And I thought, this is amazing. Uh, I've never heard of such a thing. I've never heard of any African-American, let alone in the 19th century, who managed to go back to Africa and find the exact people, his relatives, in this case, his father, had been taken from. This is incredible. And so that's why I started writing the book because I wanted to know more about how that transpired and what not only did it tell us about that singular individual and that singular individual's journey, but what did that tell us about the 19th century Black Atlantic world, the world that connected West Africa and South Carolina and other places in between, that this could happen and that this was something that was so important to, to not only to that family, but to then readers a hundred years later. So then I started on the process of doing the research. And I found out that the story is not exactly what I thought it was. Um, and, and so, the, so there, there are a number of things that are, that are really um, interesting about that. And I appreciate the, the overview and I, I definitely encourage anyone listening um, to read the book because um, it's an interesting departure to sort of go from that, um, that, that story in Ebony, as you mentioned, that, that really has all of these you know, pretty strong um, uh, ties, not um, to or, or strong sort of coincidences and resemblances to to roots, which is contemporaneous. Um, again, that <clears throat> this idea of of uh, identifying an ancestor and being really able to trace uh, trace it so so accurately to a specific place and time. Um, so. So with that with that backdrop, um, if we could talk about the, the the first chapter, which you devote to the first chapter is titled CPO Vaughn, South Carolina, and it really gives a background to Church Vaughn's uh, life in South Carolina and how the idea for him uh, to go to Africa was planted. Um, something that I found really interesting um, um, about about that that particular chapter were the, the the restrictions on the the freedoms of free blacks right the the the, the because the vons um and if you could explain a little bit about that as well that would be great um the vons uh were uh largely a family of 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 free people um but the the precariousness of their freedom and the 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 freedom of other uh free blacks uh given their sort of literal um i guess and and figurative proximity to slavery is always um, something something in the forefront. Um, so, if you could talk a little bit about the 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 um, the South Carolina that Church would have been born into, and specifically into a um, a freeborn uh, family. Sure. 
So Churchborn, excuse me, Church Vaughn was born in Camden, South Carolina in 1828. Camden is in the South Carolina upcountry. It's in Kershaw County. It's the largest inland, or it was the largest inland town. And, and it's the oldest inland town in South Carolina. Um, and like you said, he was born free. Although his father was enslaved. The reason that he was free was that his mother was free. Um, she was the product of a union between a free black man named Bonds Conway, who has some notoriety in Camden, if anybody listening is from Camden. Uh, but her father was Bonds Conway, a free black man, and her mother was um, a member of a Catawba Indian community. She herself was of mixed background, but she was firmly ensconced in the Catawba community. She, so since the mother was not enslaved, uh, neither church nor his eight siblings were enslaved, although their father was. The uh, the ch chapter of the book largely charts the frustrations of the father in gaining his freedom and I should put freedom in scare quotes because it was always attenuated and vulnerable. Scipio Vaughn is the name of the father and he was manumitted in his master's will, but it took decades for this actually to transpire. There, the, the legal status was put off and put off and put off at one point in the census, even after he was supposedly free, he's listed as a slave of the of the wife of his former master. He did manage to buy land and to build houses for his large family. He was a carpenter and set up his son, his two sons in carpentry business. His children were never enslaved. And yet his position and that of his children was always vulnerable. Uh, and so what the point of the chapter is to raise the question uh, of why Scipio Vaughn told his children on his deathbed to leave, to go to, to get out of South Carolina, go to Africa, given their relatively privileged position. They were free. <laughs> they owned land. They had houses. They were independent proprietors, um, and yet they were always vulnerable, like free people of color in South Carolina more generally, and like Catawba peoples, uh, like Church's mom's family, they were always vulnerable to land alienation, to being round up, rounded up for forced labor if they didn't pay their taxes. They always needed to defer to white people. They had to legally have white guardians. Um, and so it was a very precarious kind of freedom. And in fact, that's one of the themes of the entire book, that everywhere Church Vaughn went, he was juridically free. And yet freedom was something right. that had to be guarded and was always subject to vulnerability in every single place he went, starting in South Carolina and then in, in Liberia, as we'll talk about later, in Nigeria, same thing. There's freedom was something to be to be both cherished and guarded with with great 
with great care. Well, I'm glad that you that you said that because that indeed is something that you return to a number of times, right? This idea of freedom as independence, bringing vulnerability, and as we'll um, chat more about with uh, with regard to Church Vaughn, he he, I think it's safe to say um, that he he's of a very independent um, turn of mind. Um, so that that comes into play time time and again. So okay, so we have this this idea of of um, uh, South Carolina at the time being very inhospitable um, to to blacks regardless of their um, of their status, and um, and that's that's sort of the a major impetus along with the the actual you know deathbed exhortation of, of Scipio Vaughn to um, to go to Africa. Um, I want to mention, um, as you mentioned in the in the book, in uh, in in the second chapter, that that at the time Liberia um, sort of thought of in the same in the same vein as as Haiti, um, these sort of newly formed uh, black republics, and so a logical um, uh, logical destinations for uh, uh, blacks thinking of 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 emigrating um, from the states. Um, so in in a sense, I think the book really begins in the second chapter when when Church Vaughn departs uh, Wilmington. He's headed for Liberia, and this is about um, you said like twelve years after his father Scipio dies, um, and it's it's also about five years after um, Liberia declares its independence from the American Colonization Society. Um, so I, I wonder right. one of the things that's that, that again I find really interesting about the this chapter is the, the the sort of shifting attitudes on the part of African Americans, particularly those of free blacks, toward the idea of emigration um, and the American colonization um, society um, over the course of the 19th century. And I wonder if you could talk about this. Sure. Uh, so the American Colonization Society, as many of our listeners may know, was founded in the 18 teens through a coalition of strange bedfellows, some people who wanted to oppose slavery by offering an opportunity for African-Americans to leave the United States and settle in Africa, some people who wanted to bolster slavery through the same kind of process. But the the end result was that it was an effort. It, it was a an organization founded on the idea of sending free African-Americans out of the United States and having them settle in a colony in West Africa that became known as Liberia. And the first settlers went in the 1820s and there were very few of them and they died rapidly in a new disease environment. And also because they were creating a, a new settlement. So, uh, it never got very much African-American support through the 1820s, 30s, mm-hmm. 40s. Um, it was always a very fraught venture, and African-Americans were heavily divided over whether it was a good idea to take this opportunity and leave the country to try to be actually actualize their freedom someplace else or to stay in, and make the United States recognize their place within it. Um but there was a real uptick in interest in immigration, emigration with an EM that is leaving the United States in the early 1850s because of the Fugitive Slave Act 
and a number of other increasingly repressive measures, even on free black people in the United States. And so it was in this context, and as he was in his early 20s, that Church Vaughn began to consider emigrating to Liberia himself. There was a local recruiter in their town in Camden, South Carolina, who was promoting this and distributing information and helping to spread uh, information about the logistics of taking an American colonization society venture to, to Liberia. And at first, many of the Vaughn family members were interested in going. In the end, only church went. He left behind his family, uh, his widowed mother, his brother, his he had a number of sisters. None of them went. He was the only one who decided to go. And it was after a process of, of real soul searching and going back and forth about whether this was the right, the right move to make. Um, he didn't leave behind anything that said how he felt about it. But to try to use my historical imagination, I think here's a guy in his early 20s. He's fed up with the restrictions that he will always be living under in Camden, South Carolina, even as a, as a free person. He was a skilled carpenter. He was probably optimistic about being able to make a living in a new colony where settlers needed to build houses and they needed to build furniture and they were, his skills would always be in demand. Um, and so he went for it. And in late 1852, he joined a party of would-be Liberian settlers who made their way to the, to the coast. They sailed from Wilmington, North Carolina and they landed in Liberia in January of 1853. And that was the beginning of the next phase of Church Vaughn's life. He would spend the next 40 years in, in Africa and never come back to the United States. So the, um, his, his fortunes end up being uh, mixed in Liberia, right? So he, he survives the, you know, as you mentioned in this new disease environment, he survives a, a you know, all of the things that, that felled many other settlers, but he also um, encounters a number um, of, of problems. Can you sort of tell us a bit about um, about some of that? Well, the main thing is that in Liberia, in addition to the disease environment, settlers came face to face with the fact that the Atlantic slave trade was not finished. And while they were building a new society where they could be free and exercise freedom on the coast of West Africa, from the nearby vicinity, slave boats were still leaving with captive Africans headed towards not so much the United States, but Brazil and Cuba and the Caribbean. And so, among other things, the settler government was working to combat these slave traders who were very near them. Um, and so they sent out military expeditions and they were bringing uh, more and more areas of territory under their control. At the same time, however, they were also building up their societies in ways that were modeled on the American Southern societies that they knew. So they were starting big farms, sometimes growing sugarcane and other uh, tropical crops, and they needed labor. And increasingly, the labor force 
was so-called apprenticed Africans um, or Africans brought into labor relationships that to many observers at the time seemed very much like slavery. And so on the one hand, the settlers were very much against slavery. It was in the Liberian constitution that, that slavery was not allowed. They were moving against slave traders in the vicinity, but they were creating um, plantation style agriculture in Liberia using local labor in arrangements that was very much like slavery. And Church Vaughn was right in the midst of this. Uh, he had lived through land appropriation in South Carolina, um, seen it through his mother's Catawba people, and he had seen slavery in South Carolina. And now here in Liberia, where uh, African-Americans were supposedly making a free settlement, there was a lot that, that didn't seem very free at all. And a number of observers talked about this at the time, but it wasn't easy to leave Liberia once you got there. There were, it was impossible, just about impossible to come back to the United States because Southern states barred the importation of free black people. Um, these people had spent all their money to get to Liberia. They didn't have networks of transportation or jobs to, to get back to the United States. And so most, even settlers who were disgruntled by what was going on were not really in a position to leave. And here's where, where Church Vaughn was unusual in that he did get a chance to leave because he, um, he was making his living as a carpenter and a builder in Liberia. And through doing so, he came into contact with some missionaries from the United States, Southern Baptists, who were stopping in Liberia on the way through, on their way to so-called Yoruba country, 1,200 miles to the east, where they were going to establish a new mission station, and they needed a carpenter to come and build their buildings. And so these missionaries, as they came through Liberia, came into contact with Church Vaughn, offered him a three-year contract to go with them, and he took it. And again, this is just, it's a, it's a bit of a young man's leap of faith. He could have known nothing about Yoruba land. In fact, it had a reputation as being roiled by slave raiding. It was full of warfare. It had a reputation as being... Uh, dangerous and uncivilized. There was no European style or American style settlement there the way there was in Liberia. He and the missionaries were going to be totally on their own. Um, the missionaries were white Southerners and he had spent two years in Liberia not having to deal with, with, with white Southerners. And so he'd be going back to the, the kinds of arrangements he had left behind in South Carolina. And yet he took the job uh, because it was his way out of Liberia. And so that kind of gets us to the next stage of the book, right? And one well, there, so there are a couple of there are a couple of great things there. One one is that 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 sort of the idea that he would he would have known nothing um, of Yoruba land um, sort of pokes hole in the pokes hole the the uh, a big hole in the um, the sort of Ebony um, magazine account. Of, of, of things, right? This idea that he would have recognized, you know, you know, ritual scarification, uh, you know, and, and, and so on. So that, that, 
uh, puts that a bit into question. But you know, as you as you write, um, the the he he gets to Yoruba land during very troubled times, hence the the title of chapter five, troubled times in Yoruba land. Um, and and here again, this is one place where you where you uh, return again to this idea of. Uh, freedom as independence, uh, bringing vulnerability. Um, and I wonder if you could sort of talk about uh, some of the some of the upheaval that's, that's happening um, in Yoruba land at the time that he gets there and, and how, he, you know, how he sort of deals with that. Sure. So he got to Yoruba country at, in, oh, 1855 or so. In the midst of a period that historians have called the the era of confusion or the time of of, of troubles in in Yorba land, there was basically a law a century of warfare in what's now so- southwestern Nigeria, occasioned by the breakup of the Oyo Empire, which was an inland kingdom, um, strong centralized government, whose constituent parts rebelled and broke away starting in the early 19th century and it occasioned a series of of wars in the in the region that generated refugees and also generated lots and lots of captives for the Atlantic slave trade and so this was a period the entire 19th century in southwestern nigeria is a is a period in which new communities were being constituted by refugees old communities were breaking up um Old political units were shattering, new ones were coming into play. Um, and in some of these instances, new political units were being formed by warlords, by strong warrior leaders who could protect their, their people in this time of, of great insecurity. And so the missionaries, the Southern Baptist American missionaries with Vaughn, with them kind of happen into this. Uh, one of the and, and so one of the challenges for them and for Vaughn, too, was to figure out who to ally with, uh, who would keep them safe, how to um, how to make alliances in this context that didn't undermine their independence and autonomy, but that nonetheless offered them some kind of security. And the the fact of the matter was there was really no place that they could settle where they were utterly independent from these from these political dynamics. Over time, so the missionaries went to a t- an inland town called Ijae, and it was ruled by a strong man, one of these uh, warrior rulers who was a big slave dealer and 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 warrior king um but who nonetheless offered protection to the missionaries and so they they kind of had to negotiate this relationship at the same time Vaughn had to negotiate not only being in this polity but working with white southern baptist missionaries so over time as he got more established, as he began to learn the language, as he worked with local work people who were helping him with his building projects, he got on his feet. He began to get on his feet. And after a couple of years living at the mission station, he de- decided to, to that he would like to be more independent than that. He would continue to work for them as his job, but he didn't want to live with the missionaries anymore. And so by the by the late 1850s, 
he established his own homestead separate from the mission compound. And he did it outside of the town of Ijae as well, uh, kind of in a, in a small little town in between some of these emerging new polities. Um, and he did it as in a bid for independence. He set up his own homestead. He continued to work for wages with the with the missionaries, but he also did a little farming. He did a little trading on his own. Um, and you would think that this is a, a mark of, of freedom, of, of independence and freedom and autonomy. But the problem is that that didn't leave him under any protection. And so in 1860, a major and brutal war developed between Ijaye and another warrior-founded city-state, Ibadan. Um, and his Vaughn's homestead was located right in between the two. So in the initial hostilities, they start rounding up people on the roads in between and kidnapping each other's people. And right from the get-go, Vaughn got kidnapped by Ibadan uh, soldiers and taken to Ibadan as as a prisoner. Now, the the precarity of this should be pointed out here that both of these were selling prisoners in the thousands to slave dealers at Lagos. And the, the, Lagos is the coastal port near, nearest by. Um, and they were being shipped out. This is 1860. So at, at this point, the slave trade to everywhere except Cuba had stopped. So thousands of these of hostages or these captives were being shipped out as slaves to Cuba. Vaughn could have very well been one of them. Um, and so this was this is this was the the other side of freedom as independence. Right. And um you 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 do also, you know, mention in this, which I think could be surprising to to a number of readers um, that at this time the, the the majority of the population in Lagos were 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 enslaved people, um, and so that's you know that that I think can be just given the time period um, that's because we also think of of Lagos as you mentioned as as an African city, as sort of quintessential African city. It's sort of um, that seems a bit um, a bit shocking. Um, so in the in in chapter five, which is called uh, Reconstructions, um, you 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 talk about um, the sort of the fortunes really of the of the two sides of the family um, diverging, right? So so Vaughn is is putting down uh, roots. Um, his you know his um, economic prosperity is allowing him to. Um, to to sort of get you know he gets married he starts family that kind of thing um and is is growing in in stature whereas um in you know back in south carolina um the sorts of things that are happening at the time are really uh putting <clears throat> his his uh his family members um you know in 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 really vulnerable uh positions and i wonder if you could sort of talk about Talk about that divergence, um, um, and 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 maybe too the the renewed uh, this you, you mentioned as well a renewed interest in or an uptick in in emigration. So this chapter t- takes place about ten years after Vaughn's capture in the Abadanijai War, and I should say, of course, he escaped and. 
and survived the war. Uh, and by 10 years later, he had made his way to Lagos, the commercial metropolis, which was booming at this point. Uh, he had married, he was starting a family and in Lagos, uh, the British had taken over just the town as a colonial venture and were promoting international trade in palm oil products. And there was a real building boom going on in Lagos. And so as a carpenter and builder, Again, like in Liberia, he was in a position to prosper, but with all of these with all of these customers, he moved to the part of town where there were already a lot of, of refugees from other parts of the diaspora and other parts of Yoruba land. Um, and in fact, he settled among Brazilian ex-slaves who had come back to, to Lagos, like those I had gotten interested in in graduate school. And the Brazilians were noted as builders and carpenters as well. So he then got out of the building job himself and became a merchant in hardware and building materials so that he was supplying the materials for, for all of the construction that was going, much of the construction that was going on in Lagos. And he began to prosper economically and to build up his family, although they had suffered very high infant mortality in his family, just like everybody did. Um, this was in stark contrast to what was happening for his family back in South Carolina, who had survived the American Civil War. And so the chapter goes back and forth between what was happening for, for Vaughn in Lagos and his surviving siblings and their children back in South Carolina. Now, the family, of course, had been free since before the Civil War. But that was no help to them after the Civil War, when during Reconstruction um, and then the the backlash, the white backlash after Reconstruction, there were attempts to squelch the property holding and political participation of all people of color, whether they had been free previously or slaves previously or whatever. The Vaughns had lost their property during the war. Um, and they 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 struggled to get it back. Uh, there are a number of different ways in which one can compare the the fortunes of Vaughn and his family in Lagos with those relatives in South Carolina. And it might be surprising to readers how much better things were for those members of the family in Lagos. Uh, Vaughn was educated was able to give his children. Of high quality education in mission schools, um, studying Latin and Greek uh, and math and history and literature and so on. He was buying properties and building houses in Lagos in his own name, uh, as well as working for, for others, building up a business as his two oldest, he had two sons. And as they grew older, he set them up in business as well. Back in South Carolina, his kid, his siblings, children struggled to get an education. Very, very few of them managed to go to school. The ones who did were the ones who eventually left the South and ended up going to New York and New Jersey. Um, they struggled to hold on to property. And the the differences in, in fortunes between the two, I think, are really encapsulated in this poignant moment in which Church Vaughn was able to send a gift 
to his relatives back in South Carolina in the hands of some missionaries who he knew in Lagos who were going back to South Carolina, he sent them bags of canvas bags of gold coins. And so just the fact that this gold arrived in South Carolina from the relative in Africa symbolizes the the differences between the two of them. The gold, in fact, changed their lives once they once the Vons in South Carolina got it. They were they used it to re-enter the ranks of property holders to buy, to buy land to rebuild uh, a house that they could own. Um, but even so, they're. They've struggled to participate politically um, and and really were at least a generation behind Vaughn in Lagos in terms of the acquisition of, of wealth and position in society. And yet, yeah, and, and yet, as you, you talk about, you know, this sort of idea of the, the South Carolina side um, having their their prosperity and political participation um, curtailed, that sort of anticipates uh, what happens following these, uh, the further incursions of the, the British colonial project, um, which is what you, part of what you take up in in, um, in the sixth chapter um, titled Vaughn's Rebellion. And I wonder if you could, could sort of talk about that, the, 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 that sort of shift um, where uh, Yoruba country is sort of this um set of send of set of kingdoms and so on um and and how the um as as british colonialism is sort of further implanted uh, how some of some of what uh we see happening in in south carolina begins to happen um in yoruba land Sure. So in the 70s as I argue in the in the book, I sorry, in the 1870s um the difference between South Carolina and Lagos was white supremacy. And although Lagos was a British colony, there were very few white people there. And there was real scope for up and coming Africans, many of them from the diaspora, in fact, to succeed in business, to participate in civic life, and so on in ways that were not possible under white supremacy in the, in the United States and in South Carolina, in particular in this in the in the story, um, white supremacy arrived in Lagos in the 1880s or so. And it's part of the expansion of British colonialism, certainly by the time of the Berlin Conference, which was 1884 and 18, sorry, 1884, 85, as um, there's a concerted push to European imperialism in Africa. In general, uh, more and more of Yoruba land was coming under British authority um, and more British people were showing up. So earlier there had been very few few white people in Lagos at all. And more of them began to show up in the 1880s as civil servants and at the head of trading enterprises. And they began to displace Africans who had been doing these things uh, in civil service and in business previously, they began to displace them. Um, and they began to have more segregation between elite Africans, even elite Africans and white people. Uh, this was especially true in the mission churches, which Vaughn had been associated with his entire time in, in Yoruba land in among, in the Baptist church that he had been a part of, as well as the Anglican church, which was much larger coming with British missionaries and the Methodists as well. Uh, previously, 
Africans had risen in the church hierarchy. They had been educated in, in mission schools and then they had become church leaders. But in the 1880s, the, as part of this new white supremacist and imperialist moment, the mission churches also began to discriminate against Africans and to put caps on how much they could exercise leadership in the churches. And this is where Vaughn really had enough because he had been associated with Baptist missionaries at this point for 30 years in Yorba land. Um, and he had known a whole succession of them who had come and gone. And in the 1880s, they sent in some new missionaries who were overtly white supremacists who were discriminating against Africans in the, in the congregations. And this was going on um, in the Baptist church that Vaughn saw, but also in the other missionary societies as well. And in businesses and in civil service and so on. And, and amongst a number of responses to this new wave of white supremacy in Lagos, one of the most, one of the earliest and most forceful was a rebellion that Vaughn led within the Baptist church. And that was that he led the succession, he led the entire, almost the entire congregation to secede from the church and to form their own independent Christian church under their own African leadership. Now, this may not seem like such a big deal, except for the fact that all of the Christian churches, the entire history of Christianity in in West Africa, or maybe even Africa up to this, no, I won't go that far. Uh, but the entire history of Christianity in this region up to that point had been mission Christianity led by European missionaries. And so this was the first non-missionary African-led Christian church that they founded, that the Baptists led by Vaughn founded as a way of saying, no, we don't need these white missionaries in order for us to be, for us to be Christians and to exercise our own religious practices. Um, it was the beginning of a whole wave of separatist, that is to say non-missionary Christian churches in Lagos that then spread throughout Yoruba land and West Africa in general. Um, and it was led by Vaughn and a number of others from the Baptists, many of whom had diasporic connections. I mean, it's no surprise to me, in fact, that Vaughn was pushing for church independence at this time because he was in touch with people in the United States who um, were doing the exact same thing. One of the one of the uh, most important dynamics of post -civil, the post-Civil War South is the formation of independent African-American churches and schools. Uh, and this is exactly what Vaughn was doing, but in Nigeria. The missionaries, in fact, said in, in, their, in their accounts of this, oh, it's Vaughn and these others with American connections who are doing what African-Americans are doing back in the U.S. They're doing this here. Um, Vaughn told the missionaries, we won't let you lead us into bondage. We won't let our church be a barracoon. And so it's very much of a, um, of a move with diasporic, um, as, that's part of a diasporic kind of outlook. Yeah. And I think it, it's um, what among the things to, to, uh, to note here, um, as you said that there's sort of communications between um, he would have been 
increasingly aware um, of what you know what was happening, not just um, in the United States, but in other um, other parts of the the British Empire, and um, and so uh, so so that's interesting how that sort of feeds into uh, what you term his his rebellion. Um, the 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 final chapter um, of the book um, is devoted to uh, sort of his legacy, right? His legacy in terms of his um, his children and, um, and and their children and so on, um, as well as um, the the work that he did again to 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 separate or to, to create a, a a new a new church, um, as it were. Um, and so I wonder if you can um, sort of talk a bit about that, but and but I would again <laughs> exhort uh, uh, listeners to to really uh, to really read the book because I think that the um, the legacy of this uh, of this particular man is 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 very interesting. Well, sure. So the um, the final chapter of the book returns to the the hook that had engaged me from the very beginning when I first saw that Ebony article about the country marks. Because when Vaughn died, there were lots of obituaries about him. A big tombstone was erected in the elite cemetery. In Lagos, there's quite a lot written about him. Nothing ever said this was a Yoruba man returned to his homeland. Nothing ever said he saw his father's country marks on the faces of the people when he got here. Um, It talked about how he was a self-made man, how he had American connections, how he had left the United States because of white supremacy, leaving behind his large family. There's nothing about the country marks story. And so the last part of the of the book looks at Vaughn's legacies and also how he has been remembered by his family and by that Ebony article. And where did that come from? And I, I don't want to um, tax the patience of our listeners, but the, it does a bit of a genealogy of the country marks story and traces it to a visit by Vaughn's daughter to the United States in the 1920s. And so um, the last chapter does a bit what the reconstruction chapter did in that it compares the the positions of Vons in the United States with those of the Vons in Nigeria. But in this case, in the 1920s, when members of the family did get together for the first time physically. Um, and again, although at this point in the 1920s, some of the Vons in the U.S. had made the great migration north, some of them were, in fact, professionals, um, they were still uh, not nearly as well off, not nearly as elite, not nearly as accomplished or as, as well educated or as wealthy as those in Nigeria. Um, and this came out in, in visits between the, the two sides. And I think it was in this moment of, of getting together, also a moment of intense American interest in Africa with Garveyism and the Harlem Renaissance, that the story of the country marks emerged and then was just passed down through the generations. So this is uh, the last part of the book is about Vaughn's legacy, but it's also about the production of historical memory and the idea of the African diaspora as expressed through family history and what kinds of yearnings and solidarities are reflected in the production of a story about 
a shared origin. Yeah, and I think that that is um, there's a there's a great quote that you have from Saidia Hartman um, in that chapter that says it's only when you're stranded in a hostile country that you need a romance of origins, and I think that that really um, does um, sum up this uh, this chapter very nicely. Um, so I. Um, I, I I really uh, again really enjoyed um, reading uh, reading this book, and I certainly encourage everyone uh, listening to uh, to pick it up. Um, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about what you what you're working on uh, now. I keep moving back in time. So my first book was about the early 20th century or the early 20th century. This book is mostly about the 19th century. I'm now moving back in time further to work more on the Atlantic slave trade and to study African women in the Atlantic slave trade with some focus still on southwestern Nigeria, but not exclusively so. So uh, more about the connections between West Africa and the rest of the world, but in a different kind of way. Well, that sounds um, that sounds fantastic, and I certainly hope that if if any part of that um, uh, turns into a book, that you'll um, come back on to the the podcast to uh, chat with us about it. Uh, folks, you've been uh, listening to Professor Lisa Lindsay, the author of Atlantic Bonds: A Nineteenth-Century Odyssey from America to Africa, published by the University of North Carolina Press. <laughs>